0: today to focus on him and singing and sharing and hearing his word and sacrament. And we are continuing our Advent series this morning. We are uh, in the third week of Advent now. And this year we are following the traditional Advent themes, the biblical themes. So today is on joy, the third Sunday in Advent And my name is Paul Buckley, I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy this morning to to bring you uh, God's Word, a teaching from God's Word, and I trust through it that we would encounter God. I want to take time to look at Luke chapter 2 today, so you can be turning there, um, and I want to ponder the meaning of joy as related to Christmas. Just to define joy up front, joy is a knowledge and a sense and experience of well-being, It's an experience of well-being that overflows in appropriate emotion, expression, and lifestyle. So it's this this sense that all is well, all is really well, uh, that that we experience. Sometimes it is dismissed as an auxiliary feeling for Christians. For some reason, uh, there has arisen this idea that true holiness and true love and true Christian piety is not a matter of things like joy, but simply a matter of choice. Now, of course, choice is important. But if loving someone is simply bare choice, then it's not biblical love. It's not the fullness of what we would uh, be called to in the Lord. Just think of going to your uh, family member, your spouse, and saying, I choose to love you. I don't feel so much about you, but I am choosing to love you. and That would not really uh, be that helpful. Uh, Certainly, choice is part of that. But there's more to loving someone. There's more to life as a Christian than simply our choices. And joy is a very important part of our experience as Christians. God commands joy. Do you know that? He commands joy. He says to his people in Deuteronomy, speaking of uh, what he anticipated as their future disobedience, he says this, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So God is responding to them and their, their rebellion, their, what will become their gross rebellion, it's a, another story, but at the heart of that he's saying, you did not worship me and enjoy me with joy and gladness. Interesting. Philippians 4 commands us, rejoice in the Lord always, and then Paul for emphasis says, I will say it again, rejoice. I would say that our Christian life hinges on our joy. If you are pursuing and experiencing your joy in God, you will experience fruitfulness and faithfulness. You will experience a life that is pleasing to God and a great blessing to others. If you are not pursuing your joy or experiencing your joy in God, you will stray. You will falter and fade and eventually fail in your Christian life. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We learn from Nehemiah. Paul says in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peter speaks to his readers as though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy is an essential aspect of the Christian life. And yet, for many of us, it's an elusive quality at times. Something that may come for a moment every now and then, but seldom seems to stay. For some of us, Christmas can be especially difficult because of this reality. When we sing joy to the world, we don't feel much Well, God doesn't want us to stay in that place. God loves you. God wants you to know the life he has for you in him. And so he gives us his word. And he's here today by the Holy Spirit that he might teach us from the word. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, and and I'll tell you ahead of time, I think this passage, as we dig in and get it rightly, is the antidote, antidote to joylessness. It is the cure for joylessness. And at the core, what we'll see here is the reality that when we see with heaven's eyes, we will know heaven's joy. When we see with heaven's eyes, we will know heaven's joy. So let's pray and we'll read God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the new life you bring us. There's so much blessing in our forgiveness and our salvation and all that you have planned, all that you're doing, all that you will do. And Lord, I pray you'd help as we look at your word today that you would fill us with joy. This is important and essential aspect of the Christian life. I pray for those in our midst, Lord, listening online or here present and all of us, myself included, Lord. Would you help us see with heaven's eyes and know heaven's joy today and that it would be something that changes us in our lives. So use your word, come Holy Spirit, speak to us. Help me to serve you well and serve your people well. For the fame of your name and the joy of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8 and reading to verse 20. It says, "In In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told. them. God's word from Luke chapter 2. I want to dig into this passage and I want to particularly focus on verse 10 and 11 the core of what the angel says to them. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the main point I want to get across from what I see in this passage is that when we see with heaven's eyes, we know heaven's joy. And So let's take those in reverse order. First, I want to talk about heaven's joy, and then seen with heaven's eye. So as we look in Luke chapter 2, this perhaps familiar story, Luke sets the scene in the region south of Bethlehem, the semi-arid hill country there. There are shepherds watching their flocks by night. Shepherds were common in that day. It was just the, uh, the, probably the most common job that people would have, would be a shepherd. Their, their economy was, was based in many ways on sheep, herding sheep and sheep byproducts. And so shepherds were an important and, and basically a normal job. And so these shepherds are there uh, watching their flocks by night. So to be a shepherd means you're away from your regular home. You're out uh, taking care of the flocks by night. Um, you might have a shelter, uh, but you don't have much. So these are just normal, actually relatively poor people, the normal Joes of the day. It's important to see that in this Christmas story, that the angels, these glorious angels, the angels of the throne room, reveal themselves not to kings and not to nobility, but to the normal Joes of the day. And just to give you a little bit of background on the normal Joes of that day, um, besides them being shepherds, they were very poor. They would have been below the poverty line by today's standards, for sure. They were out in the fields, all they had were the clothes on their back, probably a little, a little satchel with a little bit of food, very simple food, some bread, dried fruit, olives, some cheese, maybe a simple shelter to to sit under in the heat of the day. They lived in a time when the average lifespan was about 35 years of age. As we are living in this pandemic and feeling the pressure of it, maybe we're more aware of what life has been like for centuries for most of humanity. We experience a pandemic, it seems, every century or so. For them, they lived amidst this all the time. The average uh, mortality rate from infectious disease is estimated during that time to have been 50%. So think about it, your average lifespan is 35. Mortality rate from infectious disease, 50%, and this would be things like anthrax, tularemia, typhus, cholera, leprosy, smallpox, tuberculosis. Influenza, measles, malaria, typhoid fever, dysentery, things like that. Those are normal things that went around everywhere and actually at times even wiped out whole civilizations. So if you lived at that time, mortality rate from infectious disease was 50%. Lifespan was, average lifespan was 35. So what that means is if you make it to the age of 35, half of your peers have already died from infectious diseases, most likely. That's what it was like to be a normal Joe in that day. Um, to, to live at the, below the poverty line, to face an early death, to struggle along. Life was tough, and it was hand-to-mouth existence. Tending sheep or something else. And these are the ones to whom Christ is revealed. These normal people. See, God is a God who is amazingly humble. And reveals himself to the lowly. He is so different than how we would be had we great power and wealth ourselves. He is a humble God who reveals himself to the lowly. And so these shepherds are out in the field doing their normal thing. And and they're together, probably around a fire. Maybe talking about life. Maybe talking about the most recent pandemic. Maybe just talking about the prophecies they knew about. Maybe just sharing, swapping stories. We don't know. And they're doing their normal thing, and yet God invades their world at that moment with revelation from heaven. A mighty angel appears, a massive angel. It would have been glorious. The glory of the Lord sh- uh, shines around them, and their reaction, of course, is fear. I probably say it too many times, but angels are not cute and cuddly. I looked it up, actually, this morning. I wanted to know, like, when did it happen that we started thinking angels were cute and cuddly? And uh, I found the guy to blame is Donatello. Not the, uh, not the turtle guy, but, um, but the sculptor from the four, uh, 15th century. He reintroduced, actually, um, uh, an ancient Greek uh, demigod, Cupid, basically, and like, started sculpting these things and calling them angels. So, Cupid, that came in the Renaissance, and Donatello's to blame. Um, so, before that, it wasn't happening. Angels are not cute and cuddly. <laughs> um, and for some reason, that took over. They're glorious beings. They're massive beings. And, and when they appear in Scripture, people are really afraid. And, the, and the, the reply of the angel is always, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So the angel appears to them and the glory of the Lord shines around them. He says, fear not. And then he gives them reason not to fear. Reason to, to have a different experience. He says, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. They pronounce to the shepherds this good news of a great joy that's to be for all the people. Now, just think about the shepherds' experience at that point. You are probably, if you're a shepherd at that point, just in shock and trying to comprehend what the angel's trying to say. You're aware of the glory of these angels You've just kind of made an abrupt transition from sitting around the fire in your normal job to encountering a glorious angel in the glory of the Lord, who's revealing this great news, good news of great joy for all the people. And I'm sure that they're experiencing a mixture of fear and wonder and confusion. And I think this story is here in Scripture because we're a lot like those shepherds. We can go through our lives more aware of the day-to-day, more aware of our struggles, more aware of what we don't have, perhaps, and the challenges of life. And the good news of great joy sometimes has trouble breaking in on us. And that's what's going on, I think, with the shepherds there as they encounter the angels. We don't need to have an actual angel appear to us because we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And that is more than adequate to communicate to our hearts the very same content and the very same experience as the shepherds. This has been captured in Scripture for us that we would see what heaven's joy looks like and that we ourselves would hunger for it and live in it. Now, the angel tells them the reason for the joy, and we're going to talk more about that for. Unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the perspective of heaven on what's happened. And after the angel says that, heaven explodes and there's a huge array of angelic beings who burst into praise. These are the heavenly hosts that are there with the shepherds at this point. These are not just your regular, you know, low rank angels. I don't, we don't know for sure what sort of ranks angels have. These are the angels, the wording teaches us that these are the angels who are in the throne room. These are like the professional worshiper angels. These are the glorious angels, the mighty angels, uh, that we read about elsewhere in Scripture, who are in the throne room, beholding the glory of God in His uh, unapproachable light, and all of His glory, seeing Him and all of His plans, and in all of His glory as far as they could tell, longing to look into the things of God, enjoying Him moment after moment, in, in just glorious praise all the time, These are the angels. That's what's going on. This is the the professional worship choir of the throne room itself who now appear to those shepherds worshiping God, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom He favors. Glory to God in the highest, in the throne room, in the place where God dwells. Glory to Him for what He's done and on earth, peace. Real peace. Those who are his people. That's what's going on here. It's a glorious scene. And, and I think perhaps for us at at Christmas and throughout the year, we, we've heard it enough and we we miss just what's going on. Just how glorious this praise is. We we miss watching and getting heaven's joy on display here. They are really excited about Jesus' birth. That's the point. That's what we see. That's what's demonstrated here. And there's no better hallelujah chorus that has ever been sung than this one at that moment as the throne room angels all together worship and say glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and those whom his favor rests. Handel's Messiah, sung by the best earthly chorus, could never compare to what was going on there. I love Handel's Messiah. Um, it is a wonderful rendition of, of worship and of the heavenly choir. Um, it's in, interesting, uh, by the way, do you, do, you, uh, do you know why people stand during the Hallelujah Chorus? I don't know if you, that's what you're supposed to do, that's what people do, they, they stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. I, I actually was on our Advent calendar, A one a uh, flash mob Hallelujah chorus done at a mall. Um, and it, I just think it was a wonderful uh, depiction of that. And though everyone didn't stand, the only ones were the choir members standing. But, but um, it's just, it's such a glorious chorus. So, in some ways, it just, it's because it's such a picture of what's going on in Luke 2, it makes sense, of course, to stand and worship. But uh, the story is that when, uh, early on, when it was presented to the King of England at that time, George II, when he heard that chorus, He was so moved, he stood on his feet. And when you're there in audience with the king and he stands, you stand too. And the story is that that's where that tradition starts. And it's an appropriate tradition. And yet it's only a a, a shadow of what's going on here in Luke 2 and what we're invited into as believers. Really, we are to live our lives, in a sense, standing for the hallelujah chorus all the time. That's what heaven's joy looks like. We see in Revelation chapter 5 a picture of what this looks like. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then I looked, John the Apostle is speaking, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is a picture of throne room worship. This is a picture of what heaven's joy looks like. And we see what heaven sees. So Let's talk about that a little bit. What does heaven see? Well, the angel says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I would say that that's the summary of what heaven sees. So let's dig into that a little bit. We have three descriptions of Jesus here that occur nowhere else in Scripture that I know of. He's described as Savior Christ and Lord, all together. This threefold description of Jesus captures what's going on, who he is, what he will do at the time, what he has done, and what he will do from our vantage point as well. He is first Savior. What is a Savior? Someone who saves us from something, right? That's simply what it is. It's not necessarily a religious word, it, just, it means someone who rescues. It's a rescuer. That's another way to. Translate that, a rescuer. He is a Savior. And a Savior presupposes some sort of peril or danger or enemy that has enslaved or oppressed. And certainly when Scripture speaks of Jesus as Savior, it does speak of Him res- uh, rescuing us from different perils and enemies, things like injustice and social inequity, oppression, poverty, even disease and famine. But, but at the, the core of our peril is something worse than all those things. It's our broken relationship with God because of our sin. All those other things actually come from sin. The curse that has come comes because of our broken relationship with God, because of our sin. And sin is the reality for humanity that we must face. It's unpleasant. We don't enjoy it. But it is a reality that we can't ignore. This inherited insanity that we all have. Where we want to replace the infinite glory and goodness of God with something that's cheap and empty, only masquerading as true glory. Something in His creation itself. The irony of our sin is is astounding that we replace the Creator Himself with His creation. And it's this inherent insanity that's in us And it's nothing but a house of cards. It's a deception and delusion. It is sad. And if we grasp this peril appropriately, we will say, what a wretched man I am. What wretched people to choose to bow such a foul and deceptive master as sin. But the angel says there is a Savior There is one, Jesus, who has been born in the city of David, who comes to rescue us. He comes to rescue us from our greatest peril. And in that rescue, we'll come rescue from all the other implications of that greatest peril. He comes to rescue us from our sin. He comes to live the life we were supposed to live, never failing, never sinning, fulfilling all righteousness, loving His Father perfectly, loving fellow man perfectly to the point where he offers up his beautiful and complete righteousness on the cross in exchange for our sin, in exchange for our arrogance and corruption of both body and soul. He himself takes the fitting punishment for our sin on himself. That he might satisfy what justice demands. The wages of sin is death. God must be just if he's good. He must be just. He must respond to our rebellion and sins. And Jesus comes as that substitute, that Savior who offers up His righteousness, His glory, His goodness, His perfect humanity, His infinite glory as the God-man in our place. To bear our sins, to pay for our sins, that the power of sin might be broken, that the penalty might be paid for, that the presence would be in time eradicated. And he exchanges his glory for our sin. And then through simple faith, this is the wonder of it all. This story is presented so that you might perceive and believe and receive it. It's not asking you to earn it. It's not asking you to do something about it other than receive it. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your self-reliance receive this gift. Through simple faith, this amazing rescue, this gift of Christ and His payment for our sins and His righteousness on our behalf that's credited to us is received through simple faith. I believe. I receive. I want you, Jesus, more than sin, more than self. He comes as Savior to rescue us and, and in Union with Him through simple faith, we are forgiven of our sins and credited with His righteousness. All his, all his rightful reward is now ours. His inheritance through His faithfulness is ours. God was so pleased with His faithfulness and His obedience and His glory through His humbling of Himself that He raised Him on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And now in union with Him, that victory is our victory. That's what it means when it says he is Savior. And it says, for unto you is born this day. It's amazing to think. To the shepherds and through implication to us, unto us is born this Savior who rescues us. This past week, Peg and I watched a movie, and I'm sorry to ruin plot, if you haven't seen this yet, but we watched a movie called Miracles from Heaven. It's a pretty accurate material, I looked it up, of the story of Annabelle Bean. Annabelle, at a young age, was stricken with a gastrointestinal condition where her digestive system was essentially paralyzed, it's called pseudo-obstruction motility disorder, paralyzed her system, caused her much pain, and it was life-threatening. Her family sought help, Uh, they lived in Texas, they would fly to, to the children's hospital in Boston every six weeks for treatment. When she was 10 years old, uh, in between treatments at the time, uh, she was playing out in her yard with her older sister, Abby, climbing on a giant rotted cottonwood tree, and a branch broke and Annabelle fell 30 feet into the hollow of the tree. She was stuck there. She couldn't get out. It took four hours for the local fire department to extract her. Her family was helpless. All they could do and all they did was pray. When she was finally brought out of the tree and checked out at the local hospital, they found she had no broken bones, no severe injuries after a 30-foot fall. It was a miracle, but there was something more that happened in the process. Annabelle told her parents that when she fell and went unconscious, she had an experience where she met Jesus. She was a believing family. And Jesus told her that after the firefighters brought her out, she would be okay and would have nothing wrong with her. And certainly that happened. They brought her out. There were no bruises. There were no broken bones. But it wasn't just that that was cured. Her disorder was completely healed. Today, this day, she is a young lady. I think she's 18 now and healthy following Jesus. It's a wonderful story, and to watch it, it's just so encouraging to see this rescue from this terrible disease. Those stories are wonderful stories for us, but there's a greater rescue that the angels are announcing here that Annabelle has put her faith in and that we all need. There's a greater peril than a disease. There's a greater peril than falling into the hollow of a tree. The peril of living in our sin and being cut off from relationship with God and spending eternity there in the hollow of a tree, metaphorically speaking, isolated in darkness. And Jesus has come to rescue us as Savior. This is what heaven sees. This is what heaven's eyes behold, the glory of a Savior for us to rescue us from our sin. And that's why heaven is full of joy. But also He is Christ. We know heaven's joys when we know Christ from heaven. Christ is a name that means anointed, but it was a name that was used for the king because the king would have been anointed. he would have been set apart as, as a special individual to rule over the people. And Christ means the anointed one, ultimately pointing to the ultimate king, the Messiah, the anointed one, whom they expected to come to fulfill the promises made to David's descendants. And so when it says Christ, it just means king, but it means the king of kings. Jesus is not only Savior, but he is king. He is the ultimate shepherd, king. And with him, he brings the kingdom of God, the reign of God. The reign of God is the fulfillment of God's ultimate design for his creation, it's where he rules. Our hearts as believers long for the kingdom. We long to see all things put right. We long to see everything under His reign. We long to be able to rest from sin and darkness and evil, to be rescued and to live in true peace, true prosperity in Him, glorifying Him and enjoying Him and loving one another. He has come as King in His first advent, His first arrival, to bring His kingdom. And He will return in His second Advent to fulfill the coming of the kingdom. We live in this in-between time where the kingdom has indeed come. It's already here, but it's not yet come in its fullness. We already know so much of the kingdom. And so, so it's important for us to remind ourselves of these things. This is an already that's real and, and it's so significant. First, we are forgiven and free from our sins right now. That's the greatest thing about the kingdom, to be forgiven and reconciled with God. And so that has already come for you if you are a believer. The king is now reigning over your life in the freedom you experience from sin that you might choose to love him and love one another and walk in his kingdom ways. Life has purpose and peace in Jesus. Life is to be transformed in every way by his reign. He reigns now to bring his kingdom to our lives and through our lives to others. That there might be freedom from evil and goodness extended through the earth. The kingdom comes to affect every area of life. It affects how we see ourselves, it affects our identity, our understanding of self. It it affects how we live in community, it affects the church. It creates the church as as the, the ultimate, a picture of the ultimate community. It changes how we relate to the opposite sex, how marriage is experienced, family, our jobs. The kingdom comes to transform education, economics, science, technology, music, arts, literature, recreation, and yes, even politics. Maybe especially that area nowadays. This is the kingdom that has already come. It is coming. It transforms things. This is what Jesus brings as king, and his kingdom is now. We must understand it's already. It's not yet, but it's already. And his intention isn't that we simply stand as individual believers forgiven, but that we come together as his people, and we are part of extending his kingdom, his reign to the whole earth. He has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. I am the king now. He has overcome sin and death. He reigns as king now, bringing his kingdom. And in that authority, what does he tell us to do? To stick to yourselves, hang on until I return. No. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them. Baptizing them. Teaching them. To obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, extend my kingdom throughout the whole world to all peoples. Make disciples of all nations that they might bring the kingdom in their personal lives, their family lives, their workplace, their communities, their politics, every aspect, their creativity. He is king who's come already. Of course, we see this in Isaiah. Uh, Toby read earlier, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the Increase, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He comes as king and his government has already started and its increase will not end. All nations will hear. The kingdom will extend and and then he will return. He reigns now, and he guarantees the fulfillment of this. He brings his peace now. Now we know in this life we will have trouble. This is the paradox. It has already come, but it's not yet. And so we live in this mix, where the kingdom has come in these substantial ways, and we're to extend it in substantial ways, and yet sin reigns, and the enemy is still active. And so we live in this time. Uh, where we have to not only live for the kingdom now, but look forward to its fulfillment. Not set our hope, as Mary taught us, here, but to live for the kingdom here, setting our hope on its fullness to come upon his return. If you are a believer, this peace on earth, the angels pronounced, is yours. And it will be fulfilled. And it is to fill us with hope as we live in this world. I remember uh, some years ago when my father passed away, he was in a hospital in Florida, that's where he spent his last two weeks. And I went down there, uh, he was on vacation down there, and it was a beautiful place, uh, downtown Naples, Florida, if you've ever been there, one of our favorite places on Earth. Full of palm trees and ocean breezes, stucco houses and grand mansions and warm days and star-filled nights, it's just a beautiful place. As beautiful as it was, I was there to watch my dad to pass on, as he passed on. And it struck me, as I was there, that he's going to a more beautiful place as a believer. That the the promise of peace and of heaven and of the new creation is greater than anything that we would ever experience here. Any place like Naples or any beautiful place, the, the new creation is far better. And our king has come to bring his kingdom and to bring this reality for all of us. Finally, and more briefly, Jesus comes as Savior, who is Christ the Lord. These things are all put together for good purpose. This use of Lord here, and often in Scripture, means God. It doesn't just mean sir or nobility. It means God, and we see this in Scripture. And I'll just take you very quickly to a few verses where we see this, because sometimes you'll hear People say should be Jehovah, not Lord, or what does Lord mean? He's not, Jesus isn't God, but it's very clear in Scripture if you study. Uh, a couple of places uh, where we see that, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 in his temptation in Matthew 4, and, and he says, you are not to put the Lord, your God, to the test. He quotes that, we can put that up, great. And then that's quoted from, from Deuteronomy 6, but in Deuteronomy 6, the translation from the Hebrew is, you shall not put Yahweh, your God, to the test. The New Testament writers uh, at that time, they didn't want to spell out the name of God. And so they used Lord. That's inscripturated reason and validity for referring to God as Lord. So when it says Lord, it doesn't mean just a Lord. It means the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, We see it elsewhere uh, in Scripture 2, Matthew 4.10, you see it again. So when it says Jesus Christ, the Lord, it reveals to us a profound truth about Jesus. That is an important part of the joy of heaven. It's an important part of what heaven sees. Heaven doesn't just see a glorious being who is Savior in Christ, but it sees God Himself in the flesh as Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He is God. He is the maker and ruler of all things. He is the one who is present everywhere. Who is infinitely powerful. Infinitely wise. Infinitely loving. Infinitely just. Infinitely glorious. Taking on human flesh. Together these two natures in one. There as Jesus. Coming as the humble king. As the savior. As God with us. And they long to look into these things. The angels can't quite get... That God Himself would humble Himself to become a human. And not only that, as a human, He would lower Himself under humans to serve us, to, to go to the cross, to die in our place, to bear our sins. This is the glory of God. This is why they say, glory to God in the highest. Because this great and glorious God has lowered Himself as Jesus to serve us. He, as God, in the flesh, will Prevail and has prevailed. And if you are one on whom his favor rests, and the, the way to know that is put your trust in Jesus. If you put your trust in Jesus, you can be assured you're one on whom his favor rests. For that is a sign of his favor, the gift of faith. From the human side, we don't understand it, but simply do this believe, receive. And if you are one who has placed your faith, you are one on whom his favor rests. And unto you was born at that point Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is the Lord. And you have nothing to fear, no matter what may come your way. As the shepherds are told, fear not, we should hear the same word, fear not. Instead of fear, we should experience joy because He wins, and He has won us and rescued us. For all those who would receive the Savior who's Christ Lord, there is nothing that should hinder us from heaven's joy, given all these reasons for joy. This is enough to make these glorious mighty angels celebrate with glorious praise. It's certainly enough to grant us joy this Christmas season. Let's pray. We ask you, Lord, to grant us power to grasp what the angels understood. To grasp in a a new way, a more powerful way, the wonder of our Savior who is Christ, the Lord. I pray all the implications of this truth would come to our hearts and our minds. And we would have that same joy that heaven has in this glorious Savior who is Christ, the Lord.